As I was going through and preparing for this this week, one of the things that kind of hit me is that one of the core values here at Highland Christian Church is that um, authenticity is essential to be real with God, with ourselves, and with others. And as we've been looking at this series, looking at the things that, uh, the first series, things that take first place in our lives, the Caesars in our lives, and dealing with the idols of our lives, one of the things that I was really um, trying to do is spend a lot of time praying, God, expose to me um, the idols that are in my heart. Show me the things that are keeping me from worshiping you fully. Show me where something has taken its pl- your place in my heart. And I feel um, if I'm going to be authentic, if I'm actually going to say the things I'm going to say this morning, that I need to confess that I struggle very much with some of the things that we've been looking at this week, and particularly what we're looking at this morning. This morning we're looking at money as our God. And it's no wonder, really, that we see ourselves dealing with this stuff so much. Even the atheist philosopher Nietzsche has said that there are more idols in the world than there are realities. He recognized that our hearts will go towards, will worship, will make a god of something. And C.S. Lewis has even said that our hearts are just little idol factories. That's all they do most of the time is pump out things for us to worship. And I say that I say that in the name of authenticity, but I also say it um, because I think in our world today, when we, when we begin thinking about idolatry, we may not take it as seriously as we should. And the only way that we are ever going to confront the Caesars or the idols in our heart is for us to actually be authentic and confess that they do, in fact, exist. So this morning we're looking at money as our God. Nietzsche also said, or predicted, that as God diminishes, money will take his place. If I made the statement that money is probably one of the primary gods that we worship in our culture today, I don't think many people are going to argue against that statement. What we will argue about is whether or not it's in our life. You know, greed is one of the most unconfessed sins um, that exist in our day. And we see money and we know that it's been put in a prominent place. We know it's something that we worship. We see it taking over the lives of people. We look at men like Bernie Madoff, you know, and we think, how in the world could a man do what he did? He faced a year where he should have reported significant loss, but his God would not allow him to do so. So he came up with one of the largest Ponzi schemes ever. He is now in federal prison. And um, many people are left having lost everything. And we think, how in the world can somebody get to the point that they're actually willing to do what he did? And actually position is probably the only thing that, um, that makes him different than many of us, is the, the ability to do it. We hear quotes and phrases like, life is a game and money is how we keep score. So when I say that money is one of the primary things that we worship, while we may not argue or disagree with that, um, I don't think we really grasp how big of an idol it really is, how much it actually does um, consume us. So over the last two weeks, we've looked at self and we've looked at success. And I'm going to suggest this morning that money is actually more of a, um, more of a feeder idol, if you will. Uh, you've got, uh, you've got basically two different types of idols. You've got deep idols and you've got those that are more superficial. 
that are used um, to feed. But the thing about money is that it touches in so many other areas. So many other idols depend on money for their success, for them to grow in our lives. I mean, stop and think about it. Nothing screams self-sufficiency louder than our ability to manipulate numbers in a checkbook. Nothing screams self-sufficiency quite so loud as the possessions and the things that we think we are able to do with our money. I mean, look at the two economic philosophies that dominate Western culture. You've got capitalism on one hand, you've got socialism on the other hand, and both, um, both are referred to in terms that we normally use to refer to God. Capitalism, if you are good, if you are honest, if you work hard, the system or the uh, the market will reward you as if the market in and of itself has the ability, has some kind of personification or some way can, can, can actually do something for you in the way that God would. Socialism, same way, replace market with system. And you see the very same thing. So even if we're worshiping these systems, essentially we're still worshiping the God of money. And like I said, money screams what we want to hear most, and that is that I am enough. I do not need your help. I am fine where I am. Um, in last week, we looked at success, uh, success as an idol. And Jason brought up the very real point that, um, that the way the world looks at success, the way that we often look at success is different than the way Christ looked at success. And um, I would say that, you know, the biblical definition is so countercultural, it's hard for us to really understand. And the same is true with money as well. And it's kind of hard, really, when you approach this subject from a biblical perspective because you've got so many resources to pull from. I mean, money is the single most talked about subject in the New Testament. Jesus talked about it more than he did anything else. So what I tried to do is I tried to find a passage that, um, that both showed the power that money would have in our lives as an idol and also to show um, you know, what, what it can do if it's not an idol in our lives. And I kind of landed on uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, um, and we'll begin reading Matthew 6, 19 through 22. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness." If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. The first thing that we see, and I think is pretty obvious in verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves can come in. Uh, and still, and we need to understand that in that in that time frame in which Jesus said this, this encompassed basically everything that somebody would have looked at um, uh, as a sense of possession or worth or wealth or something like that. So what Jesus is doing is he's confronting the temporal nature that this idol really has. He's showing us we put our security here, but it can disappear very quickly. The first thing he mentions is moths. Um, well, first. 
let's look at what, what they considered as wealth was clothing, was crops and currency, gold coins, something of that nature. And he goes after the first one, clothing. Moths can destroy. It's temporal. It can be taken away from you. Uh, the second is rust. Now, that's a, kind of a poor translation. Worm is something. What's being talked about here is something that comes in and pollutes a crop or destroys a crop through eating it or something like that. So the crops, they themselves are not something that we can really put a lot of security in. And the, uh, the third one, currency, is something that can be taken away. It can be stolen. It's something that can be removed from us very quickly. And then skip the rest of it and go down to the end, and we see this statement um, about how we cannot serve both God and money. So we've got two statements right here. We've got treasure in heaven, treasure on earth. Uh, we've got you cannot serve God and money. Both statements are talking about money, finances, possessions, that kind of thing. And then in the middle, we've got kind of this odd statement about an eye. And I think a lot of times this kind of confuses us because we don't necessarily understand what's going on here. But in verse 22, Jesus says this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Where our eye is, what we're looking on, where our God is, it will dictate our lives. It will act and react with our hearts. And I think, I think if we're going to truly understand just how deep, just how severe the nature of money as our God or our idol is, we must understand what's going on in this passage. So I think one of the fears that I have, uh, and I know that's something that I struggle with too, when, when I think of idolatry, I almost immediately go to primitive cultures or uh, of of days gone by, you know, the, the Greeks and the Romans and the gods that they had, or I think about animistic cultures today, where they actually physically bow before a statue. They actually physically make sacrifices in a temple, in a shrine, or something like that. And I think what happens then is while we will claim that money's an idol, success, um, self and all of these things are an idol, I think we're looking at it a little differently than how we look at, say, the idols that are presented or the idols that Paul confronts in like Acts 17 or Acts 19, where it is actually a physical representation of some kind of God. We hear statements like uh, what's in 1 John, 1 John 5, 21, that says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And we think, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, here you've got a pastor. He's writing a letter to a church. And in this church, the congregation is made up primarily of people who had left idol worship. They were actually worshiping gods and goddesses. And you think, yeah, that I see why he's saying that. And we miss the relevance of this passage to us today. We think something different when we think of our idols because the physical representations may actually be lacking. But I want to say that that is not the case. Idolatry today, I honestly feel, uh, is is stronger than it was back then uh, because in many ways it's much more subtle. But let's look at the things that the God of money feels in our lives. And then consider, say, the God, the goddess Artemis, uh, who was a Greek goddess. She was the goddess of fertility, and she came to represent financial security, um, you know, wealth or something like that. So if you were to pick a, a Greek god uh, 
to, to represent the idol of money, um, Artemis would be it. We see the way that they treated her, and we think that what we're doing is something a little bit different. But what we don't understand is whatever's in that place is going to have significant control over our lives. See, humans are, by design and by nature, religious. God created us um, with uh, the desire inside of us to worship. C.S. Lewis has famously said, and you have all heard it, that inside each of us um, is a God-shaped hole that can only be filled with God, or it could be filled sufficiently where we sense any kind of satisfaction from it, but we try desperately to fill that gap and to fill that void. Also, unlike animals, God has put in us consciousness. He's put in us the ability to reason and things like that. And as part of that, we are also um, created not to just simply live. We're not just reacting to our environment, but we live with some sense of purpose, some sense of meaning, and some sense of passion. We are all seeking an identity, and where we get our identity from, more often than not, that is our God. And we also live with a passionate longing for satisfaction. We know, we know that something is missing within us. We also seek final meaning, or an ultimate purpose. And even if our purpose is the rejection of meaning, which is an absurd statement in and of itself, um, but one that you must adopt if you, if you adhere to the naturalistic worldview, even if that's the case, um, we are still seeking a purpose. We're seeking something bigger than ourselves. We know that there is a transcendent something. And we will worship something. And that's basically what I kind of want us to think about. It's not in the absence of physical representations of idols at like say the Parthenon um, in, in Athens or something like that. Even, even in the absence of that, we are still worshiping something. We cannot get around it because we were designed for it. If we look if we look actually at the birth of idolatry, we will see that what we're doing today with money, with success, and things like that, actually looks a little closer to what original idolatry looked like in the fall. Genesis 3, 5, which I would say is the birth of idolatry, we read this. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This passage, of course, falls in the chapter in the Bible that describes the fall. Uh, you've got Satan tempting Eve. He's trying to get her to sin. He, uh, he is, um, he's doing more than offering her, though, just mere knowledge. I think sometimes we look at this and we think what Satan is offering here is some kind of knowledge of good and evil, as if Adam and Eve were ignorant of it. They were not. They knew that there was a good and a bad. When you look uh, at uh, Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, you will see that they knew the eating of the fruit of the tree of um, of good and uh, of of the knowledge of good and evil, um, they knew it was a bad thing, and they knew that it came with negative consequences. They also knew obedience to God and not doing that was a good thing. Satan is not tempting them with um, the idol of knowledge of some kind of something that they're ignorant of. What he's tempting them with is knowledge as God has knowledge. And what I mean by that is the knowledge of what makes something good, what makes something evil, and the ability to determine that for themselves. What he is offering them is 
the opportunity quite literally to rival God. Now, it's a, it's a false promise. It's a lie. He's lying to them. They will never get it. But when Satan is given his pitch, when he's given his gimmick, this is why you should listen to me thing, he offers them the chance to be God's themselves. He does offer them a God, but it's the God of self. Notice he does not offer them some elaborate system of worship whereby you have to sacrifice this and sacrifice that and do all these things. No, he said the God you want to serve is you, and they fell for it. That, in my opinion, is the birth of idolatry. And that is the simplest form of idolatry, I think, and I think that's what motivates all other things um, that are idolatry. And I will also say that idolatry, all sin, ultimately is idolatry. Now, man then, he turned away from his creator. He turned to himself. He screams at God, I am enough. I can do this myself. And he sets on about his merry way. And then he notices that I don't actually have the ability to do the things that I so desperately want that will show that I'm self-sufficient. So he began looking to tools and to other things and putting them in prominent places in his life. And this is where you see the birth of idolatry where they're actually worshiping statues and such things as that. So we, we see idolatry starting at this simple form where man is saying, I am sufficient, and then it kind of evolves and it grows into this thing where they're actually worshiping Artemis, you know, the, the goddess of fertility and money and financial wealth and things like that. Um, and we see that that's being uh, dealt with in the New Testament, particularly by Paul in Acts uh, 17 and in Acts 19, but then there's a de-evolution from it. We start to pull away from it. We start to realize that these gods are having no impact whatsoever. You know, the, the whole purpose behind this, even though they were bowing before statues, they were not giving up autonomy. They were not giving up their sense of self-sufficiency. They thought they could manipulate these gods to get what they wanted, and that's the whole reason that they did it. Um, so it's not like they were worshiping uh, in the sense that we think of worship as Christ followers. But as that was shown to be very ineffective, it just kind of waned and it, it, it sort of went out. And today, today we're seeing a simpler form of idolatry where we're looking at things, tools again, things around us and our surroundings that can give us a sense of self-satisfaction, can give us these things. And we look at um, you know, we look at uh, things like money and stuff like that, and that's the danger of it is because idolatry today is actually so much more subtle than it was back then that we don't quite notice it just as much. But I want us to look at the similarities. Think in your mind, goddess Artemis, whatever goes in your mind when you think about that, temple worship, bowing down, all this high religious function, things that's going on uh, in their attempt to worship this goddess. And I want you to think God of money. Are the two in any way Way, shape or form the same. I think that if we really look at it, the similarities are quite amazing. You see, both, both hold functional title over our hearts. What I mean by functional title is um, that thing at the end of the day which determines what you're going to do, that is what holds functional title over your heart. If, if it changes your mind, if you dictate your life or something based off of this thing, that is what has your heart. It doesn't matter if you claim to be this or claim to be that. 
ultimately it comes down to what makes my decisions. We also see, um, when we think of idolatry, we think of things like child sacrifice, and we're repulsed by it. We think we can't imagine actually doing that, and we're ignorant to the fact that we live in a culture that does it every day. Whether, Whether we lay our kids on the altar of economic prosperity, and we justify it, We say, we neglect them, they'll be okay, because my money will make it all all right. It's worth sacrificing our families. It's worth putting them aside to chase my God. Or or we sacrifice them before they're even born. We kill them before they're born. And oftentimes the justification that's given for such an action is the, the economic impact that it will potentially have on the mother. Again, we're looking at idols and how they match up today with how they matched up then. The idol of money, it gives us a sense of worth. It gives us a sense of identity, of purpose, and autonomy, though it will always be incomplete. We think of C.S. Lewis's statement about being uh, having the God-shaped hole inside of us. And imagine, if you will, the God in their money, success, whatever it may be, is trying desperately to reach both ends so that you will feel sufficient with it, but it never, it never quite will. But it is kind of standing in that gap, so we're like, okay, maybe I just need more of it. And we wind up doing horrible things in our attempts to make these things ultimate things and to make them fill the gap and make them be our gods. It gives us a sense of self-sufficiency. It makes us think that we are actually doing this on our own. And as we read in Matthew 6, they demand singular worship. You cannot serve God and money. There is room in our lives for one God and one only. I think we see a perfect example of this and the perfect example of the power that money has over us, and this is found in Matthew 19. This is, uh, most people will call this the, the, the story of the rich young ruler. Um, it's Matthew 19, 16 through 22. Jesus says, or it says this, And behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Um, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all of these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Uh, Two things I want you to notice. First of all, first off, you see Jesus absolutely and miserably failing Evangelism 101. He did not bring this guy to a point that the guy signed... Yeah, sign, uh, back to last week's sermon. Yeah, um, He did not come to a point where he signed a card, he walked an aisle, he prayed a prayer. No, Jesus was far more concerned, not with the superficial things uh, and trying to get him to make some kind of superficial proclamation of faith. Jesus was concerned with exposing what in his life 
uh, was his gods. We see two gods. We're only going to deal with one. His first god was law. His second god was possessions. But let's look at this man and let's kind of try to figure out just how much of a hold the idol of law and possessions has on him. The first thing that we notice um, and, and this is written in three of the four Gospels. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, to get the full story, you've got to read, uh, you've got to read the parallel passages as well. But here you've got a man. He's a ruler. We know he's a ruler. He's wealthy and he's young. That's really all we know about him. What kind of ruler was he? We don't really know. More than likely, he was a ruler of a synagogue. Um, he was a Jew, so that seems to make the most sense. Um, and he was young and he had a ton of money. But, Throw all that stuff in there and then look at this narrative again. He's a ruler. We are looking at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He is at the height of the year of opposition. He is not popular. They are already starting to seek to kill him. And this ruler, who is known by the people, um, would have known who he was and would have definitely known who he was going to talk to. He goes and seeks the answer of eternal life from this crazy Jewish Nazarite named Jesus who they were trying to kill. So on one side, you see some humility in this man. He doesn't really seem to care that he's going to talk to this guy that's not very popular right now. Also, we see that he's asking somewhat of the right question, but not really. We see that he uh, he believes that he can do something to get into heaven, but he... he um, uh, but he's still concerned with eternity. So in some ways, he's asking the right question. He's just kind of asking it in the wrong way. We also see that he's a man who apparently felt um, that he had kept the law well. Jesus tries to expose to him that he had not, um, and that's part of this whole deal. But anyway, nonetheless... Um, he knew that something in him was not complete. He knew that he wanted eternal life. He knew that he did not have it. He goes to Jesus and he asks for it. But what we see is that Jesus challenges the gods in his life. And uh, he didn't get it the first time, but the second time when Jesus said, all that you have, sell it and give to the poor. Now I need to make a note that this is not talking, this is not a prescription for salvation. Jesus does not say anywhere else, sell everything you've got and you'll be saved. No, he is confronting idols here. So we need to make sure that we understand that this, that going out and selling everything you have it will not earn you a place in heaven. But then Jesus gets to his main God. You see, he had made a God of his wealth. And when that God was challenged, he would not forsake it. He turned and he walked away and he did so sorrowfully. Sorrowfully. Think about that. He He's at the right place asking the right questions. He thinks this dude has the answer. He should have thought that dude was the answer and that was part of his problem. But nonetheless, he walks away sorrowful. That means he knows that he was leaving something behind and going after his true God. And we see that and we think, how in the world could somebody who is so close to salvation, so close to the Savior, turn and walk away? I mean... Money had power over that guy. We cannot deny that. And we ask the how. How could he do it? But I think, I think in asking that, we ignore the reality that we are a culture of slaves and that we have bought the lie that we are free. What I mean by that is if our possessions are our ultimate security, then we are a slave to them. And that is money being our God we will not look very different than this rich young ruler. We will follow our God 
regardless of where it may take us. And because money is an idol, because it is a God, it cannot be removed. It must be replaced. It cannot be suppressed. It cannot be covered up. It must be replaced. And the only thing that will fill that hole, well, we could swap out idols, I suppose, but the only thing that will ever actually give us true satisfaction is found in Jesus Christ. I think Matthew 19, when it goes on, it shows us um, something very interesting. Matthew 19, 23 through 26. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. This is the rich young ruler has walked away. Jesus makes this disciple the, the or makes this statement. The disciples hear this statement and they know something's up. Because you see, in their mind, they had kind of a think prosperity gospel. They had sort of a Jewish prosperity gospel mindset back then. It was one of the uh, prominent thoughts of the time that the closer to God you were, the more possessions and wealth that you had. And Jesus is saying, this wealthy man cannot go to heaven. Uh, in fact, it's impossible for the wealthy to go to heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's an eye of a needle. It's not a gate in Jerusalem. If you think it's a gate in Jerusalem, show me the gate. It's not there. Um, Side point, sorry. Uh, but uh, he's showing that, first of all, money is not a measure of favor with God. Not only that, but money will never be able to buy us a place in heaven. But what he does say is that while with man it's, an, it's impossible, and when he makes this statement, he's meaning salvation for all men is impossible, not just rich men. See, they thought the closer to God you were, the more you had. So in their mind, these people were those that definitely had made it and, and were definitely in the kingdom. And he's saying, no, that in fact is not it. But he goes on and he shows great grace in this verse when he says, but with God... All things are possible. Stop and consider for a minute what's going on in this passage. Jesus knows that he's on his way to the cross. What does it mean that with God it is possible? What ultimately did that cost Jesus himself? He's saying, with me it's possible. And the reason it's possible is because I'm going to go and I'm going to pay the price that your money could never pay. I just That amazes me to stop and to think that we who have committed spiritual adultery... And that's what idolatry is. I mean, that's the image. I wish I could make the image stronger, but I think that's sufficient. We have run from our God. We have worshipped other gods over and over and over again. And yet the answer that we find is that while we cannot do anything to earn His favor or earn His grace, it is impossible because we keep choosing these other gods. With Him it's possible, and it's possible because of what He would ultimately do. Now, if that's the case, that we have uh, Christ in our heart, He is the one filling that void, we'll notice a difference in money. All this time I've been talking about money. It may sound like I'm being negative towards money. I am not. Money in and of itself is not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, during prayer time, something that I had not even considered, uh, Doris mentioned um, when I was talking about, uh, you know, um, 
how, how strong of a grip that money has on us. During the prayer time, she prayed, yes, Lord, it is one of our gods, but look at some of the things we've done with it in terms of foreign missions and things like that. And that's the difference. That's actually an excellent example, so thank you, by the way. Uh, the difference between money as our God and money as our tool. Matthew six nineteen through 20 kind of lays this out for us, I think. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And the band can come on up, but two keys there. Yourselves and treasures in heaven. Do not lay up for yourselves. Do not be self-focused. You know, that, that's, that's idolatry in a, in a nutshell. We want ourselves. So don't be self-focused, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So we can still use money as a tool. Now, let's not get into the, um, uh, in, uh, start playing uh, interpretive gymnastics here and assume because he's going about talking about physical things to spiritual things that somehow this is spiritual because of this. That's nonsense. He's talking about physical possessions. He is talking about giving our Money, So it's, it is physical rather than metaphorical or something like that. But Jesus opens our eyes to the joys of being kingdom-minded. We do not have to be a slave to our money. The question is, where is our treasure? If Christ is on our throne, we will be seeking to store up treasures for ourselves in heaven. I cannot prove this, but I believe one of the greatest things, one of the greatest rewards that we will see in heaven is the lives of those who came to Christ, at least in part, by something that we did for the kingdom. So how do we transition from money as a God, practically speaking, to money as a tool? I think Paul gives us the answer in Colossians 3, 5. Put it to death. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Starve the thing to death. Nothing gets our mind off of our money and onto Christ more than getting rid of our money uh, in kingdom ways. Isaiah 58.10 says this, If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. Let's be intentional about our giving. That's what it should look like for a Christ follower. What if, what if Christ followers really grabbed hold of the reality that we have nothing to lose and we gave accordingly? And let's give without excuse. You know, there's a million excuses as to why we should not give. We come up with examples of people who were given to abusing their money. Maybe we're not responsible for what happens to the money. Our response only lies in what we give. If we do this, we will, to the world, look like fools. But that should not bother us because as Christ is our God, our identity is found in Him and not in the numbers found in our checkbooks. This morning, I don't know where you are. I know when we talk about idols, it's something that it... it it's something that should hit each and every one of us. So like last week, we're going to do the same this week. If there's just something in you that recognizes that you need to do or say something to God, we're going to have jail leaders, elders, and stuff over here, and we're going to open the front up again too. If you don't want anybody really talking to you or something, but you just need 
to you and God have time together. This front will be open. No one will bother with you here. If you need to talk to someone, they'll be over here. Um, and if you've never considered what it looks like for Christ to be preeminent in your life, if you've never considered the fact that he died for you who uh, would commit spiritual adultery against him, if that's something that you're not sure about, familiar about, or anything like that, I'll be over here um, and would love to talk to you as well. God, help us to understand, Lord, the sufficiency found in you. God, to, to know, God, that these idols lie to us and they can never fill the void, never fill the hole that only you were meant to fill. Lord, help us to see you clearly. Help us to see the idols in our lives clearly, God. Uh, thank you for the grace that you give us in overcoming these. And Lord, help us above all else to seek you. Amen.